today is uh, the J, it's Wednesday, isn't it? And this must be the 21st of October, am I right? Hey, all about that. So, welcome to Music 316. We left off yesterday with the Arhu, the two-stringed bowed lute. The handout has pictures of two different sizes of the Arhu. You see this larger size here and then the smaller size there. This one is half as big and it plays an octave higher than this one. There's a whole family of these instruments and there are some that are twice as big and four times as big so that they play much lower. You can have different combinations of these instruments played together. The one that you saw in the video was this one on the on left of your page, the one called Arhu. This one over here is called Huchin, or Jinghu, named after Beijing, the capital of China. The Arhu is an instrument that you might think would be very difficult to play because it has no frets to help guide your fingers to the right places to push for get, to get the right notes. And you can't even press the strings against the neck of the instrument because the strings are too far out in front of the neck, away from the, the wooden or the bamboo, depending on the size. Here's the arhu. And there's something wrong with the soundtrack, so you get the silences there that aren't really part of the music. But you can get a feeling from the way that she's playing that she's not really having any trouble finding where to place her fingers here. You do it by feel and hearing. And it's the feeling and hearing where your fingers are and where they move and how they move from one note to the other that uh, makes it a pretty skillful instrument in the hands of a skillful performer. Somewhat like the Western violin or cello, the cello being used here to accompany her. <laughs> the cello is being played in a very Western way. The arhu in a very Chinese way, quote-unquote, in that the arhu player is playing her notes by sliding her fingers up and down on the strings. So instead of just going, da, 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 she goes, da, 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 and slides up and around and down below and circles around the note before sliding into home base and landing on it and scoring her point on that particular note. This is the style that's used with the arhu, and it's a uniquely expressive style. It works equally well in sad music. The arhu can cry like a baby, like, a, like someone who's lost their lover. The arhu can weep and wail, and the arhu can laugh and make you feel happy. 
It is a very, very emotionally expressive instrument. The Arhu has attracted a popular following over the many centuries of over a thousand years, 13, uh, 1400 years, perhaps 1500 years that it's been played in China after it was imported from the Tibet-Mongol borderlands. It's attracted both professional and amateur musicians. Now, just like the pipa, the arhu attracted a special kind of performer, and that is musicians who were blind, people who could not see and had difficulty finding any other profession that they could take up and do as well as unhandicapped people with full visual <coughs> capabilities. Many blind people learn to play the arhu just by listening to it and feeling their way on the strings. And some of these people have been the greatest arhu players of their given generations. For instance, there was a famous blind player in the early 20th century who was the best musician on this instrument in all of China. It's a fairly common thing all over the world for blind people to specialize in music. It's something that we find all the way from the hunting camps in the deserts of Africa, all the way through the Americas, through Europe and Asia, all around the world. Blind people, after all, are only deficient in one sense. Blind people can hear as well as sighted people. And in fact, blind people typically develop their sense of hearing to a much greater extent because they have to use it to look for things that other people can use their eyes to look for. Blind people have to use their ears to find out when they're coming to a busy street. They have to use their ears to hear if a car is coming. They have to use their ears to hear if other people are coming close to them or if they might be coming close to something that echoes back the sound of their own footsteps that they don't want to bump into and, want and have to avoid. So blind people have a built-in incentive to develop a sense of hearing and also a very intelligent sense of touch that takes the place of seeing for many things, to reach out and feel and to understand something by the way that it feels. And those senses put together can make for a very gifted musician. This is example number four of CD1. Example four is a piece of Arhu music called Birds Returning to the Forest. And as you might expect, this is a piece of program music. It's a picture in sound of birds coming back to the forest in the spring after they've been gone for the winter. It was composed in the early 20th century by a famous composer for the Arhu and Pipa named Liu Tianhua, and it's played by an Arhu player named Lui Man Sing.
Now, so far, this is the piece of music just the way that Liu Tianhua wrote it. He wrote it down in Chinese notation, character, actually in number notation, Chinese number notation, and public, published it in a book of Arhu and Pipa music. And so the player has been playing it exactly the way that, um, that Liu Tianhua wrote it. But in just a minute, he's going to start to improvise and to make up new sections of music to go with Liu Tianhua's composition. He'll stick this into the middle of Liu Tianhua's composition. And let's see if we can hear when he starts to improvise something new in the piece. Now these are the birds. This is the way that Liu Tianhua pictured the birds. Whoa. Now, do you think anybody wrote that down in notation? Either Chinese notation or Western notation? No. <coughs> that was improvisation. That was the player playing what he thought birds should sound like. But now, now he's gone back to playing the music the way Liu Tianhua wrote it. So now he's following the written notes on the page and playing it the way the composer wrote it. And he'll do that again for a little bit and then he'll go back to improvising more bird sounds. to see somebody try to adapt that for violin and see how you would do getting all, all of those sounds. The other thing I would really like to see is the Chinese birdsong CD. Because, you know, you can walk into a, the, the store here and you can, you can buy CDs of American birds and hear the different songs of the different kinds of birds. 
and I would just like to hear a Chinese bird song CD and see if you could recognize which species of birds the composer and the player here are giving us the songs of. Now, we have several questions here that I've been ignoring, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure who is first. I'm going to start over on this side and come back. Can you write the names of the composer and performer? Sure, they're on the handout, and you should print out the handouts for the CDs. This is CD number one. We've been listening to it now for a couple of weeks. <coughs> there are a couple of alternate spellings for his name. There are different ways of spelling just about every <coughs> name and word in Chinese, and of course, it's, it, 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 Chinese writing is not alphabetical, so um, the spellings all follow a different kind of system, one system or another. This is the way that Liu spelled his, spelled his name in the book of, of Arhu music that he published. So he's the composer of Birds Returning to the Forest, and Lui Man Singh is the player. I really recommend these handouts to you. They have all kinds of information, like names of composers, names of players, names of instruments, pictures of instruments, names of pieces of music, descriptions of the music, little bits of history, um, culture, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and best of all, they're free. We don't get any royalties off of these. They're there on the internet for you to use. You can get them at any time, and they really help you with stuff for the exams, for one, for one thing, so it's useful to, um, to have them and to know about them. We've heard now instruments coming from different directions, from, um, from West Asia, the pipa, pear-shaped lute, from Central Asia, that is Mongolia, Tibet. Excuse me, I'm going to step on your toes there. Let's have a look at one from farther west in Asia. This is not an instrument that comes from outside of China. This is another Chinese instrument, and of course it's another zither. It's called the zhang. This is the zhang. It's the closest Chinese instrument to the Korean kaigong. Liang Tsaiping is actually the father of Liang Mingyue, who played Wine Madness on our CD, example number one. Here he's playing Mujang, a zither with 13 strings. These bridges over which the strings pass are high and movable, like the bridges on the Kayagum. And like the Kayagum, you play with your right hand on this side of the bridge, and you push the string with your left hand over on this side of the bridge to change the sound. The Zhang originally had silk strings, but the ones you see here are metal. And this is a modification that's often made to silk instruments in um, the 20th and 21st century to be able to perform for a larger audience in a larger concert hall. And of course, the other modification that is often made is the use of microphones or electric pickups. 
to pick up the sound. You notice there's a microphone here picking up the sound from, from the strings. <coughs> so, along with the foreign imported instruments, you have continued development of Chinese native instruments or indigenous Chinese instruments. And the two streams of Chinese musical instruments and foreign musical instruments blend together to create a globalized kind of music. From the Tang Dynasty onwards, that is from about 13, 1400 years ago onwards. So China was never an isolated place. It was not the remote and exotic place that many people in the West imagined that it was. Rather, it was a place that was open to other cultures and other kinds of music for most of its history. Occasionally, there were times when Chinese governments would try to close the doors and exclude foreign influences from China, but those were always relatively short periods of time before China would open again to the rest of the world. Here's another imported instrument, the Yangqin. Yangqin literally means the barbarian Qin. And the name for the small Arhu, Hu Qin, also means the barbarian Qin. But Hu Qin means the Qin of the northern barbarians i.e. the Mongols and Tibetans, and Yangqin means the Qin of the Western barbarians, that is, the people of Iran or Persia. This instrument in Iran is called the Santur. It is another zither. It always is played with metal strings. It acquired metal strings very early in its history. And it spread eastward into China. And became an instrument that excels in fast music because you can play with both hands. You have these hammers that you use to hit the strings. feel that this is kind of a lightweight instrument, not as deep or profound as the chin, not as Chinese as the zhang, an instrument that is there for showiness and flashy playing, but really not worth as much as some other instruments. And some people really love it. I mean, it is fast and flashy and colorful and is a lot of fun to have around. And so the debate goes on and on over exactly what place the Yangqin has in Chinese music, or in other music for that matter.
All right, let's start. Get up and dance. Um, so the Yangchen continues to play its role in the globalization of Chinese music, or perhaps also in the Chinaization of global music. It, as it did when it first came into China from the West, from Persia, <coughs> from Iran, bringing new kinds of music with it. And this has been a contribution of many, many different kinds of music from all over Asia and now from all, all over the world through music of China. That's a very nice performance of that piece and um, perhaps turns our head around and um, um, gets us into a different perspective on Chinese music or music in China or music in the world and China's place in it and um, other kinds of things. So thank you very much for opening that door to another way of looking at music and hearing other kinds of music. China is indeed situated at a crossroads in Asia, the meeting of the Silk Road that came across the desert from the Northwest, the meeting of the sea trade routes that came around South and Southeast Asia and up into China, the meeting of the caravan routes across the mountains from India and Tibet and so forth and so on. China is by far the most politically unified of the world's geographical land masses. You know, it's very strange. We talk about seven continents. What are they? There are two Americas. There's one Antarctica that makes three. There's Australia that makes four. Are there seven continents? <laughs> what? Africa and Eurasia. Africa, yeah. Europe and Asia. But <coughs> really, I mean, the Greeks were really wrong when they said Europe and Asia were two continents because it was just a little body of water that separated Greece from what later became Turkey. And if you walked around that body of water, you were on the same continent. You never left the continent of Eurasia. But Europe seemed like a continent to the Europeans because there were so many countries there, so many people, so many different languages, so many kings and queens and nobles, so many states and armies that were constantly at war with each other. But you go over to the other end of the Eurasian continent, and what's over there? But this other big subcontinent called China, that is one big unified country and was a big unified country for so much of the history that Europeans spent living in separate little countries and thinking of their subcontinent as a continent. China, the world's most unified large territory, but necessarily, of course, in that larger territory, bringing together so much land, so much geographical and ecological diversity, so many ways 
of people living and adapting to ways of life in the rice terraces of, of, of the east to the mountains in the west, the deserts in the north, and so forth and so on. There would have to be differences in ways of living. And so as you travel through the politically unified land of China, whether it be the Tang Empire over a thousand years ago, or the People's Republic of China in the 21st century, you find culturally distinct ways of life and culturally distinct kinds of music. As China brushes up against other parts of Asia with other kinds of people, other cultural traditions and other musical traditions. And let's just take a quick look at a couple of examples of cultural and musical diversity in China. This is in southwestern China, dances of the Yi people, and this is a sword dance. <laughs> Hey, what's going on? Where are the zithers? Where are the stringed instruments? Where are all of those sounds that we hear up in the central part and the eastern part of China? Well, this is down on the border with Southeast Asia. And in Southeast Asia, there are different kinds of music and different kinds of musical instruments. Yes, we do have some zithers in Southeast Asia. We do have some stringed instruments in Southeast Asia. But the most common kinds of instruments that we hear in Southeast Asia are percussion instruments, the idiophones and the membranophones. And that's what we hear overwhelmingly here. Look at this, a big drum, a metal gong, metal cymbal, another metal gong, I'm sorry. There are metal cymbals on top of this big drum. Let's back up just a little. Let's listen to the sound. Drums and metal. This is where China meets Southeast Asia and the sound of heavy metal. This is the area that gave birth to huge bronze drums over 2,000 years ago that spread through Southeast Asia and what would become the Chinese Empire. And the sounds of metal gongs, the sounds of metal instruments spread from Southeast Asia up into China, up into other parts of Asia, but it is centered down here in the southwest China and the northern part of Southeast Asia. This is the world's center, the heart of heavy metal music in human history. This is the birthplace of the bamboo mouth organ. 
the mouth organ that we saw in our eight Chinese instruments, one of the oldest kind of Chinese instruments. But the mouth organ was also born down here in the land of bamboo in the border area of China and Southeast Asia. I've been asked by some people in the class to remind you that class isn't over until the gong goes. We're waiting for it because some people have been having trouble hearing the last part of the class. So where is that gone? Have we got a minute yet? Let's hear just a little bit of this then. What do these sound like? Ah, all right. And somehow you sense that this may be a different kind of wine madness, but that, hey, we're not in Beijing anymore. This is where China meets Southeast Asia. So I'm sorry I lied to you. We didn't get to go on to Korea and Japan today. We'll have to do that on Friday, because now it is official <laughs> gong time. I know there's a gong ringing out there, or just about to ring. So goodbye, and we'll see you on Friday. Yeah.